This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI Senior Writer Al Castle. Back once again. Going to be joined uh, in a couple moments here by my co-host, Brian Solomon, and also by somebody who Brian worked with for a number of years, and a name that if you're a fan of the glory days of wrestling magazines, uh, you'll certainly be familiar with, uh, although he did not write for... Uh, our magazines, not Pro Wrestling Illustrated or the Pro Wrestling Illustrated uh, family of magazines. He was actually with the competition, uh, but nevertheless, somebody who, you know, me as as a fan growing up, I was certainly familiar with the name, uh, and it's a good chance uh, you were as well. Keith Elliott Greenberg uh, has been on my wish list for a number of years since we started this podcast, and uh, thankfully, uh, Brian uh, got him on the show, and we had a really fun conversation for about an hour, uh, just talking memories of working at WWF slash WWE uh, magazine for all those years, the glory days, some of the more memorable angles and stories involving the magazine that he was a part of. Uh, he talks a bit about some of the language that you know uh, us as fans have become so familiar with with WWE the words and phrases that you're supposed to use and not supposed to use and talks a bit about the genesis of that and also being uh, you know essentially having a front row seat to uh, a lot of uh, memorable angles and moments uh, in WWE wrestling history uh, he was right there as a writer for really you know the main writer, I think, for a number of years uh, at the magazine. Uh, so super fun, and he has kept busy, very much a wrestling fan, but also a very prolific author on a number of topics um, about pop culture. I mean, really, this guy really is a journalist, uh, journalist, and I respect that uh, a lot. And uh, certainly he's written a lot of books about wrestling and has got a new one that's coming out, uh, or is out, I think, uh, right now. Uh, about independent wrestling. He talks a bit about that and uh, another book that he's working on having to do with wrestling in the COVID-19 era. So uh, super fun catching up with Keith Elliott Greenberg. Uh, I think especially fun because Brian was part of this and uh, these two guys who worked together and were friends for a number of years. So um, I think you'll you'll feel the chemistry right away. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, real quick, let me tell you about the latest issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and it is a big one. It is the PWI 500. On the cover is AEW World Heavyweight Champion and our number one ranked wrestler in the PWI 500, John Moxley. And inside, uh, you've got loads and loads and loads of content in what is uh, traditionally our biggest issue of the year. I think it's fair to say this is the 30th installment of the PWI 500, the first one under our new editor, uh, Kevin McElvaney. So definitely uh, a different direction, a different tone, uh, but also the uh, the content that, that you love and that you've become accustomed to over the last 30 years of the PWI 500 uh, bios on all the wrestlers in the 500 and so much more uh, in this uh, issue. You don't want to miss it. The thing to do is to go to pwi-online.com and whether you want to download the digital edition right away and it is customized for your digital device or you want the actual print issue, you can order it, have it delivered to your home. Uh, and really the way to go is to subscribe, whether it is to the digital edition or the print issue, uh, it's the way to go, especially since you save half off the cover price. So a great value and also uh, save yourself the, the inconvenience of trying to find one on a newsstand, which I know can be harder to hard, harder and harder to do these days uh, if you're leaving your house at all. Uh, so save yourself the, uh, the, the anguish, the inconvenience. Go to pwi-online.com. And subscribe. While you're there, um, why don't you subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, the PWI Weekly. Uh, this was an institution in the uh, early 90s uh, when we used to actually mail out every week print uh, newsletters. Uh, Kevin's brought it back. It's a ton of fun, completely free, uh, different uh, looks at current events, uh, also looks back at historical issues 
and uh, lots more and again completely free so definitely go ahead and do that also please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast we certainly appreciate it leave us a a kind review uh, i'm going to thank everybody over at podbean for hosting us for all these years and you can find the podcast uh, over there uh, you can also find the pro wrestling illustrated t-shirt and uh, a number of different t-shirts uh, that we're putting out now including some pwi 500 t-shirts over at pro wrestling tees uh, dot com and of course you can follow us on social media at official pwi over on twitter and on instagram we're also on facebook we're also on youtube and uh, all that good stuff and of course you can send us an email at uh, pwi at kappa dot com uh, that's any uh, questions or thoughts on the <coughs> on all things pwi and if you got something specifically for the podcast Send it to PWI Podcast at Outlook.com. Uh, Before we get to uh, the interview, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the passing of Road Warrior animal Joe Laurinaitis. Uh, tragic news uh, coming out early this week. Um, of course, uh, we lost Hawk a number of years ago. So now both members of what many consider the greatest tag team of all time uh, gone way, way, way too soon. I tweeted something about it, and um, you know, my takeaway was that uh, I think it's fair to say that that Hawk was uh, a lot of people looked at as the the star of the team, the the charisma of the team, and I get it. I mean, the guy was just uh, overflowing with charisma and just kind of natural likability. Uh, Animal was a little more stoic, uh, but if you saw the uh, the dark side of the ring uh, documentary, I think you got a real feel for how, in a lot of ways, uh, Joe Laurinaitis really was the the heart of the team kind of the businessman uh, of the team, and especially uh, in as much as uh, a lot of his effort was reigning in Hawk, <coughs> his partner, Mike Hextrand, uh, for all those years. And, and I don't know that uh, the Road Warriors would have had the run that they had over, uh, you know, 20 plus years, were it not for uh, Animal really keeping the, the team and the brand alive for all those years. And, um, you know, he was active in, even in WWE until... Uh, what about 13, 14 years ago? Uh, so a guy who always kept himself in in, in good shape and uh, was keeping that Road Warriors name out there. So just uh, a tragic, tragic uh, loss. Certainly, the Road Warriors uh, were were huge for our family of magazines um, for all those years. And when you think of some of the most memorable uh, cover images either in Pro Wrestling Illustrated or our other publications. So many of them uh, featured uh, the Road Warriors. And how could they not? I mean, those two guys, the face paint, the hair, the spikes, if, if they weren't made to be on the cover of wrestling magazines, uh, I, I don't know who was. Actually, uh, just, I think, minutes before I heard the news of uh, Animals Passing yesterday, I saw that Kevin uh, published some some classic photos that he unearthed kind of from our archives of uh, the Road Warriors in New York, uh, I think sometime in the 80s, and it's just these great photos of them uh, walking up a, a subway station stairs and eating from dumpsters and hanging out in Times Square, uh, just so awesome, and uh, really everything those guys did uh, was so awesome. So we're certainly mourning the loss of Joe Ornitis, Road Warrior Animal, and uh, we're keeping his family and loved ones in our thoughts. Uh so, uh, as I, I was saying before, before we started recording, um, I love having old Wrestling Magazine guys here on the podcast. Usually, they are from our family of magazines, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine. The, the only one we've ever had from the competition is my co-host, uh, uh, Brian. Um, but uh, And it was Brian that helped set up uh, our next guest, somebody I want to talk to for a long time, a guy who was synonymous with WWF magazines when, when I was growing up, Keith Elliott Greenberg. How are you, Keith? Hey, good to talk to you. And you said you like to have old wrestling magazine guys. And I guess the operative word is old. How about, how about old wrestling magazines? Right. <laughs> that clarifies it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, as I said, I mean, it, it, kind of like Stu Sachs and uh, Craig Peters and, and Bill After, it was just one of those names that as a kid were very influential. You, you, it was almost kind of this mythical kind of thing. Keith Elliott Greenberg, it was so synonymous with uh, WDF magazines. How, how many uh, years were you with the magazines? I was on retainer for them um, for 22 years. 
And I remember I knew that something suspicious was going on because I called Brian at the office and he said, I'm not allowed to talk to you. So sure. I kind of had a feeling at that stage my retainer was going away. Did your guys' time overlap at all? Yes. We, we uh, well, maybe 10 years. May, how, what year did you get there, Brian? I was there from 2000 to 2007. Okay, I, seven years. Yeah, oh, it was 2007. 2007 too. So we, you must have like gotten clipped right after me. Was well, it like a clean sweep of, of yeah. like the old timers pretty much? The reality yes. was, right, a lot of the people left at the same time for that reason. They were cleaning house, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and, and I actually remember having a conversation with, um, with the fellow who took over. And he was quite reasonable. He said, look, I looked at what we pay you on retainer every year. I've never seen you in the office once because I would just go on the road. So I could probably get two kids right out of college to do what you do. And, you know, given the turn that that magazine made after Brian and I departed, you could have probably gotten two kids from kindergarten to do it. <laughs> no bitterness there, though. <laughs> so, so were you kind of like the, the Stu Sacks of the WWE? I mean, not the Stu Sacks, the... Um the Bill After of the WF magazine that you were kind of I, I the wouldn't go guy. that far because Bill After was an office guy. And, and, and going to the shows and all that. and Yeah, I went to the shows. Like Bill After, I would say I did have a relationship with, with a good deal of the talent. But so did Brian. So did Mike Fazioli. So did Aaron. You know, uh, so did Anthony Calley. Uh, and I'm just talking about a specific era. There were guys like Luigi and Frito and Ed Rusciutti who came before. All of those folks had a pretty good rapport with the talent. Yeah. What um, I mean, for me, as so many, I think, people my age um, growing up watching WWF, it was really about the 80s. And uh, when I think about the, the, the glory days of the wrestling magazines, it, it is the 80s. When, when you look back. On, and, and I know your career has had multiple facets, even outside of wrestling. Uh, but remarkably, people <laughs> do things outside of wrestling. Inconceivable. Is that the days that, that you're most fond of? Were, were writing for the magazine in the '80s? Oh uh, well, it was a lot of fun and it was fresh. Just like you might romanticize the wrestling you watched when you were in fifth or sixth grade. Uh, you know, I romanticized the era where I became an integral part of WWF magazine. So, sure, uh, the 1980s was a high point for me. The Attitude Era was a high point for me. You know, I also made a lot of friendships, both with writers and photographers and, you know, with some of the talent. So, you know, there were a lot of good eras during that 22-year span. Yeah. And, you know, when, when I talked to um, some of the the folks from the past at Pro Wrestling Illustrated and the Weston magazines. Uh, it's fun to hear how they'd come up with these stories. And a lot of them were just sitting around and somebody would brainstorm and they'd come up with that, the, an idea about some storyline. And it was very kind of like rogue. I imagine a lot less so for, for you at, at the magazine where you, you kind of couldn't go off script, right? Well, you could, um, you'd have to adhere to a certain framework since you know, there were angles that were about to take place in the future. So you couldn't build somebody up as the consummate hero when, you know, we've been told that at the very least they're thinking of turning them into a villain. So there were restrictions in that regard. I still think there was a, a, a quite a bit of creative flexibility. And um, before Barry Werner, who was the um, editor, uh, uh, the publisher, uh, when Brian and I were there before Brian, before Barry got there, I remember making up quotes quite a bit. And once Barry got there, uh, Barry comes from a very straight journalism background. And he says, no, let's get the quotes directly from the talent. They can probably add something to to the complexion of the story. And I think they did. That, that's very similar to the kind of experience I've had at uh, PWI over the whatever it's been, 13 years now. And, and the reason why I wanted to make up quotes initially was because I was reading PWI and The Wrestler and Inside Wrestling. So, you know, that's what I was trained on. What was, uh, and I'm also always fascinated about this too, and we usually hear it from, again, our perspective, the, the PWI perspective, the, the, the Weston Magazine, Kappa Magazine style perspective, about that competition. But, but you on the other side, how much were you guys 
uh, aware of what was going on with the the, the capital of Westing magazines? How much of it did you look at it as as competition? Not to me. I mean, those guys were my friends. I was friends with Craig Peters and Bill Apter and George Napolitano. You know, I, I still consider those guys friends. How about, how about among your, your bosses, the publisher, even all the way up to, to the McMahons? Well, certainly there, w- there was a period where those guys were banned from WWE shows. So uh, they were, you know, they certainly looked at his competition. I remember Bill Apter telling me that he called the office for something. And one of the executives said, uh, no, you're he said, I'm from this wrestling magazine. And he said, there's only one wrestling magazine, and that's the WWF magazine. So I'd say at the corporate level, there wasn't the warmth that I felt. But how can you feel hostile to Bill Apter? Yeah. Yeah. And was, go ahead, Brian. Well, I was just going to say, it, I think I may have mentioned this before, but in the era when I was there and in the office every day, I think p- people would be incredibly surprised at how much the staff um, idolized and adored the Western wrestling magazines. I mean, because it seems like we would be on this whole other level. You know, we have the corporate backing of the WWE and we're, why would... But we were we were guys, even Barry, and Barry was older than most of us, but like six, Well, older than you guys. <laughs> is, isn't Barry older than you too? I think he is. Uh, slightly. Yeah, yeah. But he's way older than me. No, but but like sixties, seventies, early eighties wrestling magazines we were obsessed with. We would even try in um in meetings to brainstorm, especially for WWF magazine, which was more fictionalized, like we would aspire to do like some of the sensationalizing kind of stories that we used to read about, like have just some crazy cover line that we would hope would grab people's attention. Like when we did uh, Brock Lesnar, you know, I enjoy crippling people, you know, in quotes, something like that, because that would be like what we would see, you know, and and, and, and I remember Anthony Callie writing a story about Gangrel, and he described Gangrel sitting in catering, drinking a goblet of blood. And so <laughs> that was certainly inspired by the Western magazines. Yeah, we would try to create those kind of fictionalized vignettes that we would read about, like where a story opens up and it's like a scene in the locker room that we would have no way of knowing about it, if it happened or not. But it's just like it just added flavor to the story. That because that's what we grew up reading. Yeah, the the one I loved, and actually I just saw that the WWE Network put together um, uh, a whole kind of mini doc about this angle, and that was the the Ric Flair Randy Savage angle leading oh, up. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, and Luigi and Frito was extensively involved in that one. I remember. I remember him writing it. And calling me on the phone. And back then, you know, you communicated by house phone. And he was typing, I think, on a typewriter. And reading the excerpts as he was, uh, you know, conceiving that. Well, a a, a huge piece of that whole angle, which was one of the main events of WrestleMania, was the magazine and those photos. And I remember as I was already a teenager, I guess, uh, at that point. But looking so closely (laughs) when there was the big reveal that they were essentially photoshopped. I'm talking about Ric Flair having uh, an affair with Miss Elizabeth. Elizabeth. That were released of uh, Rick and Liz together. And then some issues later, there was the reveal that the the photos were doctored. And then you had side by side the the version with Flair and the version with Savage. I just, this is so great. I mean, I'm getting giddy just talking about it. Um, do, Do you remember like, or do you know about sort of the mechanics of how that was done? Um, I remember the art department was involved. I remember Louie talking me, to me on the phone about it. I remember everyone being very excited about it because the magazine was going to get all this attention. And that was where our focus was. And, you know, TV, which always had precedence over the magazine, was going to allow the magazine to bask in the spotlight for a while. Yeah, yeah. Were there other... I, I remember something else. Um, I'm trying to remember which intercontinental title it was. It, it was Savage Lost to Honky Tonk Man. No, and lost the Steamboat. That's right. Steamboat. So, yes. Okay. So I can't remember who it was, but somebody was going to lose. And knowing that in advance, there was a line. He held the intercontinental title for a quote 
for a short while. I remember. Yeah. I think it was Savage, right? It, it might have been Steamboat, actually, because it I, was I, Steamboat. Uh, because I, I, I think the but they have it longer, and then there was an audible called. Right. So think about this. There's no internet then. So you're picking up a magazine, and there's a reveal held the intercontinental title for quote a short while, which indicates that the plans are in place for this person to lose the intercontinental title. Now, now you log on to, you know, any number of websites and, you know, it's revealed, you know, Vince is thinking of taking the titles away from this person. You know, Sasha and Bailey are going to have a feud, although feud isn't a word we could use at the WWF magazine. Rivalry. But, you know, right. A rival. Um, but then there was nothing like that in print in advance. And, as you mentioned early on, I wrote for lots of people, not just wrestling people. And this is at the height of the Hulk Hogan era. And so I was freelancing for USA Today. And I call in an article. Back then I would, you know, interview people, write an article on my notepad, about 12 paragraphs, and dictate it on the phone from a payphone. I'm calling in an article for USA Today. And the person who's taking the dictation goes, someone wants to talk to you right now. And somebody gets on the phone and they're like, so what's the deal? Is this person losing the intercontinental title? And it's like they're even talking about it in the USA Today newsroom. Yeah. I, I, and, and I think that's really interesting because, I mean, uh, as you touched on, having inside information now isn't all that big a deal now, right? Because it's everywhere, right? That you yeah. hear this, this one's going to turn, this one's going to lose the, the belt. But but you would have some of this intent information at a time where it was really uh, uh, taboo, I would think. So, uh, and as a fan, was what was that like at the time? Maybe knowing something that you knew that nobody else knew. And you're not supposed to tell anybody. Yeah. So it's not like I could, you know, go, first of all, you know, I, I had two very good friends who were wrestling fans who were my childhood friends. But, you know, by and large, it's not like I could go to the neighborhood tavern and say, guess what? Honky Tonk Man's going over. <laughs> like, not everybody was as excited about it as I was. So, you know, what? I remember I would call up Ed Rusciutti or Luigi and Frito at that time and babble with them about it. Sometimes I'd call Tom Emanuel the publisher because I'm a mark. Look, we all are. And, you know, during the era when Brian was there, we'd get on the phone and talk about it. Yeah. yeah. What were you guys, I, I guess it goes for both of you, but, but were there any kind of like non-disclosures that you, you had to sign or was it just understood, keep your mouth shut? Well, I, I, I assume that if I didn't keep my mouth shut, I'd, uh, I'd lose my retainer and I didn't want to lose my retainer, nor did I want word getting back that I was going around and gossiping. And so I didn't do it. Yeah. How, yeah. how about you, how you remember? I had a different, you know, because, because I was a, a full-time salaried employee, there was a lot more just paperwork and stuff. And it, when I got hired and, you know, now that you mention it, my gut reaction was to say like, I don't remember, you know, any kind of an agreement, but I actually think there might have been now, now that I think about it, there might have been because this is you're talking 20 years ago now. There might have been something, a paper that said to the effect of like industry secrets and that meaning that that things would be considered confidential and that you weren't, uh, you know, if, if, if stuff was described to you as something not to be shared, that it was a breach of your employment contract. I think there might have been, actually. I, I, I haven't thought about it in years. I also wanted to say, too, because you were talking about the Savage and Elizabeth and how and Flair and how like the magazine was center stage. The the you, you can correct me on this, but the only other time that sticks out in my head from those days, at least when the magazines really became a part of the story was when the Rockers broke up. I was about. OK, yeah, because they did that article that was hinting that there was dissension, and on the barbershop set, Brutus Beefcake, right, he showed the article to them. Right. And, and he ripped it up. HBK kicks Janetti through the window, throws him through the window, common misconception, and then he rips the magazine up on camera. Yeah. Right, yeah, I, I, I remember then. I was actually standing 
right off set. And I think I was standing next to Tom Buchanan, who was taking pictures. And I was told that the rockers were, were going to break up. And I think nowadays, if there was an angle like that and you were writing, say, for WWE.com, you couldn't just position yourself like next to the photographer and the camera person. You'd probably be sitting in a seat watching. But back then, I could walk like practically right up to Brutus Beefcake and get a really good good view. You know, so um, another thing that I remember, I remember when um, Randy Savage and Elizabeth were getting divorced. Mm. Um, WWE decided that they were going to announce it in the magazine as kind of a shoot. And. I remember being told, well, Randy wants you to write this story because you and, you know, Randy and I had a good rapport. And I remember walking over to Randy and being kind of cautious because I knew how upset he was about the breakup because I'd been driving around with his brother who was telling me. And, um, you know, Randy and I went over to a corner and, um, you know, he was you know, he didn't give me a lot of details, but he told me that they were getting divorced and how heartbroken he was. And, uh, you know, there was no Internet then. So people didn't find out till the magazine hit the newsstands. I don't really remember that. So was there a story about that? It was a, a, an item. It That's was not. I remember something short. Uh, it, was something it was the short. only place that it was acknowledged. Yeah. Yes. And I think. There was a photo of them together. Luigi and Frito, I think, wanted to do a ripped photograph gimmick, and he was told, "No, we're not doing that." Real, yeah, that's fascinating. How how would you guys at the time handle um, like uh, a tragedies, deaths, and 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 the time, you know, this was before the real spate of deaths in in the nineties and two thousands. But you would have ones certainly. Um, I'm trying Rick to think. Rude. Adonis was one. You know, I remember that one. Uh, well, Adonis, Adonis crashed into a, a lake. So the, 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 that was not a drug tragedy. No. That was just a tragedy. Um, I don't remember ever writing, this person did too much cocaine and died. What do you mean Joey Morella? Did you guys do something on, on uh, that? I, yes, we had to have, because that was a real tragedy. And I knew Joey Morella. You know, and I'm sure, I, you know, Gorilla Monsoon obviously was never the same after that, nor would any of us be um, if this was our own child. And um, so, yes, we did something about Joey Morella and, you know, Joey Morella's death was acknowledged on the TV show. And again, that was a car accident. You know, it was a freak accident. You, you guys both said something that I thought was interesting when, when you brought up feuds and you both kind of like instinctively said, we didn't use the word feuds. Was there a, a, a lot of that? I mean, you hear that about the McMahons. Language, words that, that for whatever reason were, were banned. Keith, I remember learning a lot of it through you because you would be the conduit. Like you would be at the shows on the road and like Vince would, uh, you would say like, well, Vince, Vince told me we can't say strap anymore. And then you, you would tell Barry and then Barry would tell the rest of us what we weren't allowed to say. Because Vince would come up to me. Right, right. It was that intimate back then was, you know, I mean, Vince would say, uh, Keith, um, don't say strap anymore. You know, don't say squared circle anymore. You that know? was one. Yeah. yeah. You know, and he would say it friendly, you know, and so that would be the, the, the edict. What, what was behind that? I mean, to this day, I think. Uh, look, I remember Rusev in 2016, I co-wrote the WWE Encyclopedia. It was the third edition. And I remember I went to the book signing in Indianapolis. I kind of wanted to go just to kind of force myself there. I thought, oh, maybe there'll be people from WWE there and they'll, um, you know, they'll give me more work. But um Rusev was with Rusev and Lana with the book signing. And I think it was the night Rusev lost the U.S. title. And he was telling me, you know, in the Barnes and Noble in Indianapolis that he was backstage recently and he pointed at the title and he said, uh, oh, uh, oh, sorry, let me get my belt. And Vince was standing there and he said, that's this isn't a belt. A belt is something you use to pull up your pants. And Rusev said, "Oh, this is great. I just walked in here two minutes ago, and I'm already in trouble." 
<laughs> what, what's always fascinated me about stuff like that is that in in trying to correct language, they're actually wrong, right? So no, it's about well, look, it's a business company and it's about branding. The 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 name, right? I, I have the title of um, you know, senior writer at, at Pro Wrestling Illustrated. A title is not something you right. hold in your hands, but they get to fix it. It's like they want to create their own language and their own own rules of language. Well, yeah. it's a brand. It's a brand, and there's a corporate logic behind it. And I'm a writer, not a corporate guy, so of course it's easy for me to mock it, but their success would probably counter what I think. Yeah, the one that drove me the most nuts ever was um, the 25th anniversary of WrestleMania, which was not the 25th anniversary of... The 24th anniversary, right. WrestleMania 25. <laughs> that was that was admittedly, yes, frustrating, yeah. But, but they would do this sort of thing where... You're right. They would try to really put over these words and terms and not realize sometimes that they were the only ones that used them. So sometimes it could be misleading. Superstars. superstars. Yeah, superstars could be very misleading, although I feel like you have now a whole generation of fans that grew up with that. So maybe oh, less. Oh, that, that, that was a successful one, you know, because and, now I instinctively say superstars. But I always say WWE superstars. Yeah. So here I, we can mock them all we want. But instinctively, that's the term you use now. Yeah. So they've been successful at it. But I think the most notorious one for me has always been sports entertainment because I feel like it, it just always felt so so forced. And it's one of those things where, you know, I think it's now like 35 years later and the average person would still consider it to be pro wrestling. It's this weird problem. thing yeah. where you're, you're producing a product and you're insisting that it has a name that it doesn't actually have. It's just, it's a very, very strange thing to me. It always was, even when I worked there, having to type sports entertainment, sports entertainment, sports entertainment all the well, time. Well, sometimes I didn't mind it because I will, you know, it, if I, if like I would write World Wrestling Federation. So then I'd say, well, I need another word for wrestling. I think I was allowed to say grappling. You yeah, know? you could oh, say grappling. Cool. That's right. Yeah, we did say. But I, I wasn't allowed to say the grunt and groan circuit or something oh, like that. I love. I love. I, I, I think I, well, I could get away with Matt Wars. I was able to do that too. Now, interestingly, because the reason I'm here is to promote my new book, Too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution. And when I was writing this book, I could just write strap or belt, and nobody was going to get mad at me or squared circle. And wrestling and wrestler. So it was kind of a liberating feeling. Are you, after are you aware of those time when, when you would when you write wrestling or something like that? Is there an awareness like, oh, wow, I just wrote definitely an awareness. If I'm saying, you know, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin and other wrestlers, those guys actually are superstars. Right. So it, it'd be this this, you know, in between feeling it's like. Well, I probably should be writing superstars now because they are superstars. Maybe not with a capital it's so, S. What? Maybe not with a capital S, as we would do. Right, not with a capital S. So, yes, I certainly thought about it. It was like I was – I don't talk about this ever, but since we're talking like that, I was raised in a kosher home. Now, you know, once I was a teenager, my parents were no longer kosher. They kind of outgrew it. But to this day, if – you know, I'm eating a hot dog and somebody puts down a big white glass of milk. I recoil, mm -hmm. even though, you know, there's no logic behind that now. So it's the same thing if I'm writing, you know, wrestler instead of superstar. That stuff is ingrained in you. You can't really breed it out of you. Yes, I, I get I, I get a, I almost have to physically compel myself to type the letters WWF when I have to do that historically, because we couldn't even do that. Even when it was called WWF, we were not allowed to have the letters in print because of the World Wildlife Fund. That is why in those magazines, very often we would just say Federation. Or Fed. Or Fed. We could not write, we could write World Wrestling Federation. We could not write the letters WWF. That's even why they came up with the block logo. The whole purpose of the block logo was they could put it in print, they could advertise it without having to put those three letters together. We would even use the block logo 
in print in the articles to take the place of the letters WWF, if you have you ever noticed that. Wow. It's <laughs> fascinating. Um, so let's talk a bit about your, your, your new book. Um, and in, uh, that's something that in, in your time writing about wrestling uh, has completely changed, right? In the, the, the place of the independence. And I think about um, the, the early years of the PWI 500, which, which we, you know, we've been digging into as of late because we just put the magazine out. And what indie wrestling was in the late 80s and early 90s, at least here in the Northeast, was to me as an observer very low rent it looked like your dad you know putting on some trunks and going in the ring um and a a copy uh of what they saw on tv and somewhere along the way it feels like it, it branched off and and rather than trying to to replicate what they were seeing on on big tv um, it, there was intentional movement to offer something completely different and alternative. I, I think it evolved naturally. I think, you know, you have this period uh, in indie wrestling uh, post uh, WCW being absorbed into WWE. And at that point, you're getting the guys who were not picked up by ECW and WCW and they're headlining shows in high school gyms. And so there's an awareness you're getting the guys who weren't selected for the A-team. But in time, indie stars came up on their own. And many of those indie stars were inspired both by the Attitude Era and by ECW. And they just had to get old enough and get out of puberty in order to start doing their own stuff on the indies and become stars in their own right. And, you know, there's a guy I interviewed who... Um, owns the store Wrestling Universe in Queens. Oh, One I of the reasons I interviewed And I said, oh, I better interview Jack so he can, uh, you know, because then he'll want to sell my book when this comes out. And um, Jack has a small promotion in Queens. And he said very early on, he was featuring guys like Xavier and Homicide and Loki. And those guys were, this is, right after the demise of ECW and WCW. And those guys were already indie superstars. And now I'm using superstars the right way. And in the New York metro area, you know, people were coming out for those guys or they'd see those guys once and now they wanted to come out again. And that's the phenomena. After a while, you had fans coming back not to see the old WCW and WWE standouts but these indie stars you know later on you had guys like you know kevin owens or uh you know kevin steen and uh, and el generico uh sammy Zayn. and i actually wrote something down specifically for this a turning point year was 2012 and um 2012 you had a lot of phenomena occur at once on the indie scene uh, Bushiroad bought uh, New Japan, and um, that was significant because New Japan was still living off the fumes of the Antonio Inoki era, and now a new era was dawning that would lead to stars like, you know, Hiroshi Tanahashi and um, Kazuchika Okada. And then you also, at the same time, Progress and Revolution Pro Wrestling both start in the U.K., this is again in 2012, and that is drawing a line between the new era and the world of sport era. And then in the United States, pro wrestling guerrilla, you have Adam Cole, Kevin Steen, and El Generico all winning the uh, PWG championship. And um, at, at, at the same time in WWE, NXT begins. Right. So that is really a turning point year in this whole story. And, and NXT was sort of WWE um, sort of putting their stamp on, on independent wrestling, right? I mean, kind right. Of, I, yes, yes, co-opting yes, independent wrestling, which means I'm sure Triple H was watching independent wrestling and was well aware of what was going on. And so there was this understanding that there was a movement out there. I don't think anyone realized how strong the movement would become, 
But there was definitely an acknowledgement that there are some exciting things happening on the scene. And, you know, we again, initially it was seen as a WWE developmental league, but it very much developed a personality of its own. And that was largely because these people were calling on their back, summoning up their backgrounds on the indies. And so were the coaches. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've got to uh, admit, I've never been a huge, uh, I'm a supporter of independent wrestling, but I've, I've never been one to just go to indie shows um, all the time. And to me, it's sort of the difference between uh, uh going to a local uh, uh, live music show at your, your bar and seeing some super talented local artists and then going to see Kiss at Madison Square Garden. And growing up a WF fan, I think I've always been sold on, on part of the product being production and presentation. And um, I think I miss it. When I, so when I when I checked out some local indie shows, with the exception of like Ring of Honor, I used to go to ECW all the time. I'll, I'll go to ROH shows, but my my local indie, I've always had kind of a a hard time enjoying that that much. And look, and there's there's millions of fans who feel the same way. There's millions of you know Carrie Silkin, the former owner of Ring of Honor, who was immensely helpful as I put this book together. Um, you know, he says in the book, he goes, hey, you know, if the Young Bucks walked through Madison Square Garden during a taping of Monday Night Raw, what percentage of the fans would recognize them? Now, I would assume with AEW on TV, a larger percentage than at the time he said it. But what percentage would? What percentage of the WWE audience would recognize the Young Bucks? Or, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember going to... Um TLC at the Barclays uh, Arena, and it was the first WWE show that was ever held at the the Barclays uh, Arena. And running into Kevin Steen, uh, just like getting a beer, and nobody bothering him at all. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. A bunch of guy, you know, in parka. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that a lot of times people people overestimate that, especially people in the business or people who write a lot about it or people that are on wrestling Twitter and things like that. They don't realize this may not be as true as it used to be, but I still think it's true that a, a large portion, I would say even the majority of the casual fans that watch, let's say, Monday Night Raw every single week, they know next to nothing about any other wrestling besides WWE. And, and I think the people that are more diehard sometimes really lose sight of that and they assume that things are known that aren't known. So like a guy will show up. And everybody's marking out and they're thinking the whole fan base is marking out. Oh, my God, it's so and so. Whereas to a lot of people, they're like, well, this is some new guy, you know. But the difference is NXT. And yeah. I was at the NXT takeover in Brooklyn when Adam Cole showed up. And that fan base knows the indies. Yeah, that's and when Adam Cole showed up, the entire audience was screaming, Adam Cole, baby. And that was, you know. 13,000 fans or 15,000 fans, however many people they had crammed in there. So that, that it, you know, is a different following. Yeah, I remember that. You, you mentioned that. Uh, are you working on a book now about wrestling in, in the COVID era? I am. I am. You know, when I finished this book, um, and I'll say the book out loud so people can order it, um, it, Too Sweet Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, I knew there had to be a cutoff point. Because otherwise the book would just go on forever. And and I make it very clear. I define indie wrestling in the widest terms possible. I say it's like using the term Christian to include Roman Catholics, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, and Unitarians. So I'm including, I'm even linking New Japan in there. And I'm linking AEW in there. But um, I end the book with a show that uh, Game Changer Wrestling put on at the appropriately named House of Independence in Asbury Park. And on that show, you had Joey Janela, Orange Cassidy, Marco Stunt, Jungle Boy, and referee Bryce Remsburg. From that show, they all went down to Washington, D.C. to participate in the inaugural AEW Dynamite. So to me, that was a good ending point. 
Now a new chapter begins in the indie wrestling revolution. But as I say in the epilogue, the story I knew at that point the story wasn't over. Now I was assuming that the year 2020 would come and you'd have the Wednesday night wars and you'd have a viable alternative to WWE and for the first time in a generation you would um you'd have choices. It would be the best time to be a wrestling fan. Uh, in a generation. You also had Ring of Honor rekindling their relationship with New Japan. You'd have New Japan putting on shows in the uh, on American soil. Um, you know, uh, Australians coming to the British promotions, uh, New Zealanders coming to Japan and, 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 and England. You know, a lot was, go- was going on. And then COVID happened. And so um, the, the book quickly became... The book book is quickly turning into wrestling during the time of the coronavirus. Now, there's lots of things that are happening in wrestling during the time of the coronavirus. There's been the speaking out movement. And uh, there were the the furloughs of the WWE wrestlers, who um, the majority of whom ended up in in, in impact. You saw Miro on uh, on a debut on AEW. So those are all stories you know, are wrestling during the time of the coronavirus. And then you have real world events that are always in the background. You can't really ignore what's going on with the coronavirus. We have a very volatile American presidential election. We have Brexit going on. Uh, we've had, you know, Boris Johnson get, getting getting COVID-19. We've had Trudeau's wife in Canada getting COVID-19. You have the Premier League. Um you know, uh, rolling back their plans to allow a limited amount of fans in, in you know, to see live soccer or football. Uh, you've had baseball teams having, you know, during an abridged season, having to take days off because people are coming down with COVID. These are all part of the story. And all of these have an impact on professional wrestling during this era. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm fascinated by um, all the the different philosophies that we've seen from promoters, um, you know, from shutting down altogether. You've got like a ring of honor that is yet to hold the show. I know now they're, they're planning to come back online. Yeah, they, they did. They did have a show um, that was not um, there. Were, uh, there were not live fans there, but they did tape. Uh, so they're, some they're, so they're, but they were kind of the last to come back online after everyone. And on, on one extreme, I know New Japan also took tons of precautions, shut down for a long time. You know, aren't they like not allowing fans to, to clap, I think, or something? Yeah. And then you've got on um, kind of the, the other extreme, WWE, um, that, you know, had to be kind of dragged kicking and screaming to, to not hold WrestleMania and, and, um, and somewhere in between. And, and, and AEW uh, uh, having now selling tickets and, and having fans back in, in arenas, small numbers, uh, but, but nevertheless. So, so look at all those, who, who do you think has done the, the, the best job, the kind of most honorable job? And I know that can mean a lot of things because yeah. they're best from a health standpoint. There's best from a business standpoint. So well, well, journal, journalistically, I don't want to cast judgment. Um, I, you know, I like to look at myself as an observer more than someone who editorializes. Um, you know, there's virtues and and drawbacks to every approach. Certainly, um, I have been um, fascinated by WWE's approach. Um, the, uh, the, the cinematic match existed in some form. We all remember, you know, Goldust and Roddy Piper's uh, you, uh, uh, f- famous uh, battle along the highway during the uh, O.J. Simpson era. We remember the boiler room brawl in, in WWE. So there were cinematic matches already. You could even argue that the Terry Funk, Jerry Lawler empty arena match was a cinematic match. But WWE has now um, solidified the genre uh, so that was WWE responding to a crisis that was brought about by this pandemic. And, um, you know, y- you look back at WrestleMania, if you rewatch it, 
it seems like from another time because it was mainly empty arena matches. You know, no crowd. You know, AEW, I don't think, had brought, you know, even the wrestlers to ringside yet. And there weren't the fans gathered around at the performance center. You know, and now you have the Thunderdome. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Thunderdome is another innovation. So you look at professional wrestling during the coronavirus time and what WWE has done. And for all the criticisms of WWE being rooted in another time and the comparisons uh, between Vince McMahon and a mid 80s or late 80s Vern Gagne, I don't think that's 100 percent true because WWE is still changing the game, so to speak. At the same time, I love what AEW has been doing with um, having initially the, re- the the wrestlers at ringside, not restricting what they can say and uh, just allowing them to be spontaneous. It's definitely uh, created some of that studio wrestling vibe that I remember from, you know, the, the old Georgia championship wrestling and Florida championship wrestling eras. And then I've been to numerous outdoor shows where fans have been socially distanced and, uh, it's a, it's a bonafide wrestling experience. And, yep. you know, I, I haven't really watched in detail a lot of New Japan. I did look at some excerpts from their recent stadium show. And it's all very interesting, too. I, I feel for, um, like, the impact wrestlings of the world, uh, and they're not the only ones that I guess just don't have the resources to do what some of the, the big companies have. And, and you know, they're sort of the last one still playing in front of completely empty uh, houses. And it really takes something away from what, what otherwise has been a pretty good product as of late in, in Impact. And I feel like yeah, they're putting so, their yeah. best foot forward, but, you know, they've got no reaction to anything that they do. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and I was talking to Trey Miguel from Impact at, uh, when I was at a recent show for Warrior Wrestling in Chicago. And he said, you know, there's a lot of talk going on where it's like, okay, this is an unusual time. Let's study, you know, tapes of ourselves to see what our strengths are, what our flaws are, try to get better. Instead of playing to the fans, let's play to the camera. Let's use this as a time to improve, not as a time where we're handicapped. Have you enjoyed the Thunderdome? I love it. I think. uh... Yes, I do. I, I think I, I don't think Brian, you and I have talked about it since yeah. it actually uh, was launched. I think it looks great. Yeah, I do, too. You know, I know that I, I'll mention my wife a lot. It's almost become my trope because my wife is like the person that tolerates wrestling because of me. So like her reactions to things mean something when she saw that thing, like her eyes bugged out of her head. Like like I never saw her get that enthusiastic about anything wrestling related. Like she couldn't believe it. She grabbed my arm. She was like, Oh my God, look at this. What did they do? And I didn't even really, it made me pause and think about it. And it really is, um, a major improvement. And it, and it, I mean, you know, it still doesn't beat a live crowd, but, but it's, it's really, it's helped a lot. It's on this kind of subconscious level, it makes you feel like what you're watching is more important. It's hard to describe. It's almost like that feeling, and I don't know if people younger than me get it, but like if if you watch a movie that's playing live on television that you know millions of other people are watching, there's a different feeling when you go like, well, I, I own this movie. I can watch it anytime I want. But it's something about knowing that all these people are watching it with you. It makes it feel more special, more important. So you have that visual reminder, oh, all these people are watching it absolutely improves the product, e- even though the, I have to say that the pipe noise sometimes yeah. is a little weird. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it's a work in progress. Yeah. Or, you know, as uh, I think it was Debbie Bonanzio who worked at w, WWF magazine, we would joke, we'd go, a work in progress. <laughs> but 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 it, it, it is a work in progress. And I'm sure the audio is something if we're discussing it, you know that they're discussing it. And, I'm just, uh, been yeah. that much of an issue. And again, I, I won't uh, I'm no expert in this, but you'd think that'd be relatively it's, it's a laugh track. It's it's different strokes. You know, uh, it, you'd think it's like a button that you hit and there's a crowd pop. Um, but it's just this sort of like monotonous murmur throughout the whole show that doesn't really move up and down. Well, I mean, baseball's the same thing. Now, I was reading that in New Japan, um, the, the fans uh, who are in who are live. 
they they have access to a, a, a it's like a, a almost like a remote control yeah. where they can press certain buttons for cheering and booing you know and i i understand like fans who were watching the bundesliga in germany uh were able to do that from home so i wonder if we'll see that incorporated here in the united states let, let me ask you how much longer do you think it wrestling looks like this and and what is the next evolution maybe we start to see it with aw starting to sell tickets again having a few hundred fans you know whatever it is 10 percent. maybe but what happens if suddenly there's a you know there's a second or third wave of the coronavirus so i don't think anybody really has that answer and you know when i started working on this book about wrestling in the time of the coronavirus you know i was well it, it wasn't initially a coronavirus book it was you know, the, the the continuation of the indie wrestling revolution. But I was given a deadline. I'm not going to make that deadline because it's still evolving. So, you know, I can't write about wrestling during the time of the coronavirus if the coronavirus is still going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping, I was thinking mentally of a cutoff point. You know, maybe if there's live fans at WrestleMania, you know, I okay. mean, are there going to be live fans at the Royal Rumble? Who knows? Do, do you think um, it's a Thunderdome WrestleMania next year? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and, you know, what what happens to the Thunderdome? Like, let's say a vaccine is created and now the coronavirus isn't the threat that it is today. You know, you have that technology. Do you keep that technology in your back pocket and use it when it's expedient? Do you use the Thunderdome technology for some, you know, secondary or third rate WWE, not rate, but, you know, secondary programming. Um, Are there special matches that become Thunderdome matches? I'm really not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Here's an interesting one. I just think about talking uh, uh, to you on, on some of this stuff. What do you think wrestling would have looked like back in the 80s when you were writing for the magazine if there was a pandemic then? I think wrestling just would have continued. I don't think there would have been the same restrictions because back then we couldn't work remotely. We couldn't have, if we were doing the equivalent, there weren't podcasts. We wouldn't be doing a podcast. It would have to be for a radio show. Now we could be doing this on a telephone and conference call technology existed. Maybe we'd be doing a conference call right now. But People had to go to their offices to get stuff done. People communicated by mail. Um, You know, some people communicated by fax, but it took a long time and it wasn't that expedient. So I think wrestling and baseball and football and people working in offices, I think it all would have continued. And obviously to the detriment of the health of the country. I would think or the the, the detriment of the health of the world. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Anyway, we've been talking for like an hour now, Keith. I, I could do this all day long uh, with you. I appreciate you uh, coming on with us. Uh, so, so tell us more about. Um, I, I guess the, the important news is the book that you've got coming out now, right? Right. So it's too sweet inside the indie wrestling revolution. It traces um, indie wrestling to uh, the days of the outlaw territories uh, in the early 1960s. And it's how did we get here? It goes all the way up to the AEW era and it examines the dynamics of independent wrestling. And it, you know, it sheds a highlight on some of some of the of both the uh, major names in independent wrestling and some of the more obscure ones, too. Okay, and Uh, can order it from ECW Press or more likely just from Amazon. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. ECW Press, I know, been very friendly to wrestling book of authors. uh, over the years, including Brian, right? That's right. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to reading Brian Sheik. Brian's yeah, you're, you're kind book. of like uh, kicked into another gear recently on that, right? Yeah, I really did. And, and when you mentioned like no hope of hitting the deadline, that really uh, that really hit home for me because I had to have that conversation with them recently, just because of circumstances. I mean, COVID nineteen stuff, losing our jobs, and I've had family related stuff. But yeah, like I've I've I'm now in the full on writing phase. So it's been it's been gratifying all the research and the work, you know, when you get to the point where you can actually start writing, it feels good. Right. Right. 
Well, both of you, thank you so much. I feel like I've been part of a little uh, WWE magazine reunion here. Uh, you were. <laughs> yeah, we got a Barry Warner on one day. Yes, I was going to say that. Good luck. Actually, Barry, Mer uh, sorry. Uh, Barry Warner made a good joke. He said uh, when Brian's book comes out, when you open the book up on the Sheik, a uh, fireball fly out. <laughs> Did he say that? Oh, that's great. I think that is a compliment. You know, JR, Jim Ross retweeted Barry yesterday. Because Barry said something about, uh, I forget what it was, just uh, uh, the pay-per-view or something, or what a good job they did with the show, and um, and JR retweeted him. So they're, they're pretty tight. I think you were saying good luck. Should we round it out with that? <laughs> yes, good, good night. So you want to say that sentence again so your podcast comes to a definitive end? Thanks, Keith. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, thank you, Keith. I appreciate it. Uh, when, when you get the, the next book coming, uh, we'll be sure to get you back on and we'll, we'll trade more stories here. Thank you. It was okay. a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Have a good one.